Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and Jerry's here too. And this is Stuff You Should Know uh, about mail order marriages. <laughs> the murky waters. <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, yeah, this is one of those where we researched and researched and read and read. Yeah. And uh, I think it's it's one of those deals for me that's like, and this is just my opening statement. Okay. <laughs> where it, it can be a, uh, a positive thing, like a dating service in some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is certainly a darker side to the whole situation. Uh, I already know how you feel about it, and I feel like it's coming through clearly. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's very, it's one of those really murky things where sometimes you hear these really great stories about people that do find, are looking for love and find love with someone from another country, mm-hmm. and it works out for everybody. Yeah. And then sometimes you hear about uh, stories where it's sort of what uh, the National Organization for Women's Sonia Osario calls uh a softer version of human trafficking. Mm-hmm. Or and, even worse, occasionally someone turns up murdered. Yeah. Abs- I mean, that's the truest dark side. So uh, that's just me level setting, and we can talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. I think that was a great level set. I generally agree with it, but for me, the jury is still out in thinking about it as a whole because there's so little hard data on this stuff. Yeah. Almost everything is anecdotal. True. And when, like, you condemn something based on anecdotal data, what you've got there is a moral panic, not necessarily something in in reality. So I'm a little hesitant to go all the way. The jury's still out for me, but I definitely recognize the same stuff you do for sure. It's definitely there. It exists. It's just, for me, the question is, how much does it exist and does the good outweigh the bad? And I don't know. So we we should probably, like actually define what we're talking about here because it, I, most people, I would guess, are familiar with mail-order brides. They're more, um, more recently, they're, they've come to be called mail-order marriages because they've been extended to same-sex couples in the United States. But then also, like, even more generally, it's called um, international marriage brokerage, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a, a full industry built around this with thousands of uh, websites and and agencies that are brokering these marriages, and you know, from looking into it, it seems like there are some really above board ones mm-hmm. that kind of act like uh, an international dating service in some ways, um, where they group, you know, match like people together, and then it seems like there are a lot of really sketchy ones <laughs> that charge people a ton of money yeah. and aren't looking out for. Uh, the men or the women. Yeah, and none of it, that money is sunk back into making their website look at all <laughs> non kludgy yeah. I saw some really, really bad websites. <laughs> I um, mean, so bad, man. Like, yeah, I think and, I and saw Comic Sans at one point. Yeah, it's hard to see those and not think, well, A, this is a scam, or B, this is a front for some sort of CD trafficking operation. Right, yeah. It is tough not not to um, think like that. But but what we are talking about generally is um, a, a, uh, a marriage um, where the husband and the wife are generally unknown to each other. 
maybe have met once, but if they did, it's possible it was just a day or two before. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe they've met once or twice and have done some correspondence back and forth for an extended period of time. But that's pretty new. And in, in, in the classical definition, it's they're generally unknown to one another. Um, and one of them, usually the the bride, travels a very long distance from home to move to the husband's home uh, and make a life there and, and be married. Um, that's not the Webster's definition. There's a lot more stumbling in my definition, but I think that generally gets it across. Yeah, and, you know, the, the kind of the classic thing that you think of is— lonely American man who Mm -hmm. has a little bit of money in his 40s or 50s can't find American woman and ends up getting a a young, beautiful young Ukrainian woman Mm -hmm. who doesn't speak much English and would love to live in the United States uh, and and fall in love with an American man. And that's sort of, and you know, of course it happens from all countries, but a lot of times you think of Russia and the Ukraine or maybe in Southeast Asia or something like that. Uh, that is sort of, I feel like when people say that term, most mm-hmm. people, that's probably what pops into their head. Yeah, or I think you're being rather generous. I think a lot of people would be like, you know, some sad sack who can't, like, find a woman in America has to go look elsewhere to get really judgy about it. And I think people are really judgy about mail-order marriages. I think there's a long-standing right. tradition in the United States of considering people who who go outside the traditional channels of marriage and basically take it into their own hands, like through mail-order marriage, are— they're they're very much judged harshly and criticized, maybe maybe fairly, maybe not. But I think there's another component too, especially these days, is that the men who who are looking for women for mail order brides are also dominant, domineering, possibly abusive, uh, and they're looking for docile uh, women who will do whatever they say because they're the husband. So they have to go to other cultures where that might be more prevalent and where they can select from uh, women who might respond to that kind of thing a lot better than an American woman who wouldn't put up with his guff. Yeah, I mean, that is certainly a a part of what happens sometimes. And some of these agencies uh, promote that, uh, the submissive nature. Um, There was one that literally said that these uh, young women are, quote, unspoiled by feminism. And you have potential homemaking savings of $150 a week uh, because you're essentially getting a, you know, sort of a live-in domestic servant. Good Lord. So, you know, that's the underbelly and the dark side. But we, you know, I did find some that do seem very above board and people that do genuinely look like they're looking for love and have struck out at home. So they're looking elsewhere. Yeah. So I said, Chuck, and we should also say one other thing, too, like, you know, um, it's pretty like it's a pretty well-known thing in America. It's not like on everybody's lips. You don't hear it in every monologue on the late night talk shows or anything like that. But like generally people in America are familiar and know about mail order marriages. But it turns out it's even bigger in other countries like Taiwan and South Korea have huge mail order marriage industries um, that may even dwarf the United States. And it's pretty I don't want to say it's huge in the United States, but it's not like just some small speck of sliver of like an arcane group of people. Like it's bigger than you'd think, but it's even bigger in some other Asian countries as well. Yeah. And uh, Dave uh, Roos helped us put this together and this was a, a tough assignment for him, but uh, he used a, um, a lot of information from a book by a uh, legal professor 
originally from the University of South Carolina named Marsha Zug mm-hmm. called Buying a Bride, insert colon music, oh, yeah. Jerry. And engaging history of mail order matches where uh, it seems like she gives a, you know, a fair but fairly full-throated defense of its history through the ages as far as, and we'll get into this, but as far as an opportunity for a lot of women to gain more agency and to gain more rights uh, at a time when they might not have any, uh, all the way up through today where uh, she still defends it to a certain degree Mm -hmm. and, and says... You know, like, sure, these situations can be bad, but what's really bad is what undocumented immigrants have to suffer through in this country because they have no legal rights. They can't go to the police. They can't leave their their uh, spouse or, or their partner mm-hmm. uh, for fear of deportation. And uh, it's an interesting take, I think, and, uh, and I'm glad that Dave found this book, you know, because I'm not sure that I would have been as fair. Yeah, yeah, no, she definitely almost, I get the impression that she um, is defensive in, on behalf of the industry just because of how mistreated it's been, and in her opinion, unfairly in large part. Yeah, so because, you know, I, I think it very much has an anti-feminist rap for good reason, but she does make some compelling arguments that throughout history, mm-hmm. it wasn't that way at all. And I guess we can go ahead and dive into some of that Yeah, in um, the early days of mail-order marriages in the American colonies. Yeah. There was a, a a lack of women problem in the, in the early colonies. I mean, like um, the earliest colonies. We're talking like Jamestown here. Yeah, like, you know, the Puritans and Pilgrims, they may have come over with their families, but there were a lot of single men that came over. And a lot of them, uh, some of them may like run off with an indigenous woman and live with among her tribe and be like, you know what, I'm kind of done building things for Jamestown. I'm out of here. So that's no good uh, if they're looking for young men to like kind of help build up these young colonies. And then other ones were just lonely and said, hey, I, like, I, there are no women over here. What are we supposed to do? So very early on, uh, they started um, sort of advertising and bringing uh, women, you know, supposedly volunteers over who wanted to come to the colonies and, and sort of have maybe even more rights than they had back home. Yeah, and this is a really good example of kind of like a, a thread that ran through the first couple centuries of America's founding, um, which was government-sanctioned and supported um, mail-order marriages in order to help build more stable communities, right? So the the, um, legislatures did things like create laws that made it more attractive for a woman to become a mail-order bride in this area. Like, um, apparently in England, uh, if you became a widow, you you got a third of the estate, and that was it. And in places like Virginia and I think Maryland as well, they set up laws that basically said, hey, you're going to keep a lot more than that. You can run your own business afterward. Like, being a widow is going to rock. And did we mention also the men are dropping dead like flies over here. So (laughs) (laughs) your husband's probably going to die pretty quick. So if you don't like him, who cares? You still get to keep all this inheritance and you get to keep the business and you can't do quite that well for yourself under those circumstances back in England. So that attracted people. And that was like the government saying, like, please come over here and marry these strangers that you've never met before. Yeah. And, you know, it made sense for a lot of these young women because Mm -hmm. many of them were – you know, they were from like the servant class, let's say. So they were looking at years of servitude 
uh, in England. And then they basically were like, well, hey, forget all that. Why don't you just come over here, get married? And like you said, I think the stat is even uh, one in three marriages lasted 10 years. Yeah. So they did kind of sell him on the fact that, yeah, it's not so great. He'll probably be dead soon enough. Yeah. And then you can have his stuff. Yeah. And it actually, I mean, like that that actually did um, uh, like attract some women. I think at least, uh, I don't I don't know if we have the number, but it, there definitely were what they called tobacco uh, wives uh, who came to marry new tobacco planters who were setting up their own fortune. And I actually had to prove that they were of financial means by donating 150 pounds of gold leaf tobacco to the right. Virginia company to to take part in this, right? And so um, that that lasted as long as it lasted or as long as it needed to. And as the Eastern colonies started to, like, become more self-sufficient, um, became less rowdy, became more family-oriented as far as the Europeans were concerned, um, <clears throat> the, the need for, like, those mail-order schemes um, kind of went away. But then as America kind of expanded further and further west, the frontier kept recreating itself in different places. So, you know, um, it went from the eastern colonies to, you know, along the Mississippi and then further and further out west. And every time it did that, this new iteration of the frontier was settled by rowdy men and they would have to figure out a way to get women, to attract women to come out to marry the rowdy men so they would stop beating each other up in bar fights and, and become more productive citizens. And that kept going on throughout the, the uh, 18th and 19th centuries in the United States. Yeah, and, you know, if you're already thinking, guys, this, this already sounds <clears throat> terrible, these marriages based on these financial arrangements yeah, and, you know, despite these promises of a better life, like that's kind of what we're talking about. Like, welcome to marriage in the 17th and 18th century. Yeah, don't be like, so naive. <laughs> yeah, that's not, that's kind of what it was. And and Dave made a, a good point. Like, the notion of marrying for true love, that's a very much like a 20th century proposition. Yeah. Uh, even if it wasn't a mail order bride situation, it was someone's dowry or or parents sort of arranging marriages and saying these family this family should marry this family mm -hmm. which still goes on today i should point out mm -hmm. among like the blue chip and the high society sure like and, and arthur had to marry susan you know let's yeah. not forget that everybody with a habsburg jaw was an arranged marriage I'm he guessing. couldn't marry liza minnelli the oh, young oh, waitress from I'm queens sorry, i didn't realize you were making the uh, movie reference i thought you were I thought what you other were Arthur using, and Susan? <laughs> I thought you were using like Biff and Muffy, like gen, general. Oh, Arthur uh, and Susan. Like okay, Blue sure. Blood, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I got it now. I got it. But the point is, is that marriage was a financial arrangement many and most times back then. I'm, I'm not saying no one ever married because they were in love. I'm sure that happened. Uh, but it had to tick a lot of boxes back then. So it was just sort of the way it was. And so this solved problems mm -hmm. for uh, early settlers and for westward expanders. Uh, they made things really attractive in California for women. They made it easier to divorce your husband if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. uh, they made it easier to, or just legal to own and sell, buy and sell land, mm -hmm. which is not something you could do at other places in the country. So they were trying to make it an attractive situation for women to move west because they needed men and women out there. And uh, I think the between 1850 and 1860, the uh, the Population of women in California increased from three percent to nine nineteen percent. Yeah, 
of the total population. So it it was working. Yeah, it was. And it wasn't just California, but um, Washington State uh, also participated. I think Oregon may have as well. Um, and there would be there the, the, the schemes, and I don't mean scheme like, you know, like dastardly scheme, but like a, mm-hmm. a, a, a plan. A good scheme. Yeah. <laughs> Where like a guy would go around to the uh, bachelors out in like Washington territory and be like, give me a, a hundred bucks or I think 300 bucks, which is about five grand today. Um, and I will bring you a suitable wife. Um, and th- at least one guy did this. Uh, Asa Mercer um, was a marriage broker, and he would go back east, say, hey, there's, like, this great booming economy out west. Why don't you come with me? And, like, he would return with, like, 100 women, and some of them would get married immediately. Some would wait. Um, but it was, like, a, another. it was another thing where there was a need for women uh, to stabilize an out-of-control male population. Yeah, and, you know— Zug points out very fairly in her book that some of these Mercer girls from, as they were called, from Asa Mercer's operation mm-hmm. uh, became abolitionists. Some became women's rights advocates and social reformers. Uh, one of them's name was, uh, was a great name, uh, Mehitable Haskell Elder. Uh, and she organized the 1871 Women's Rights Conference in Olympia, Washington, and recruited one Susan B. Anthony as the territory delegate for the National Women's Suffrage Association Convention. Yeah, right. So, you know, in a lot of cases, these uh, women did find agency and they did get out of a better situation than they were in back east. Hey, so you want to take a break and then uh, we'll talk about the, the probably what was the real birth of uh, mail-order marriages? Sure. Okay. We'll be right back. All right, Chuck. So we've been talking to this point about basically like government sanctioned schemes to kind of stabilize male populations. There was also at the same time, beginning in the 19th century, um, I think starting in England, actually in the 18th century, that was kind of simultaneously unfolding. And that was um, uh, the matrimonial advertisement industry, which to me is like the the real birth of the mail-order marriage industry that we, we understand today. But it was basically the personal ads. Yeah, it was the birth of personal ads, the birth of dating services. <clears throat> uh, it's really interesting in that uh, women would put ads in London and then later on in the United States, ads in the paper, basically saying, you know, hi, this is who I am. This is what I'm looking for. I mean, much like you would see these days in like a dating profile. Mm-hmm. And it was a way for them to, you know, to take some agency over avoiding the arranged marriage that their parents had set up for them mm-hmm. and maybe get a little bit of choice of suitors. Right. And I mean, like that is like taking control of your own um, of your own marriage prospects. And, and it was I guess radical is probably a pretty good word, but it picked up, it caught on, um, especially in the U.S. Uh, by the end of the 19th century, it really started to catch on to where there were like um, magazines that were like dedicated just to matrimonial advertisements, right? Yeah. Like there was the uh, the matrimonial news, which is actually the most straight ahead of all of them. <laughs> yeah, I like uh, Cupid's Messenger. That sounds okay. like a cute one. Uh, what about Heart and Hand? Heart and hand, and then to me, this one, 
I guess they were just trying to play it really safe. The Standard Correspondence Club. <laughs> right. Good day to you. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, yeah, so these things were, like, kind of popular by the end of the 19th century. But then, it's like you said earlier, the um, by by the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, our ideas about what constituted marriage or the reasons for marriage had transitioned from financial arrangements into love in America, right? Mm-hmm. And so— uh, there was simultaneously a popularity of matrimonial advertisements and people taking control of their own marriage prospects. And at the same time, um, a criticism and a, uh, uh, a, like, society generally looking down upon people yeah. who did that kind of thing. So there would be stories in the paper of people like sad sack bachelors or lonely heart widows getting conned or swindled or getting fool catfished basically is what you'd call it today. Um, and people love to read that kind of stuff and laugh at their misfortune and look down on these people. Um, and that, that, that's where like the root of what people still do today to the mail order marriage industry, uh, at least in America, um, really finds its roots in the, in the 20th century. Yeah, and this is when things started transitioning to overseas, uh, when American men started bringing in women from foreign countries. Mm -hmm. And that's when, I think that's when it became a bit more of an industry. And this is when Congress got kind of full-on racist in trying to control this thing. Yeah. Uh, Because there was, you know, there were women saying, I don't want these women coming into our country and disrupting our our feminist agenda that we're trying to push. There were men saying, we don't want this uh, people from China or Japan coming in here. And, you know, they can, they can have babies once a year. And they like, there were senators literally saying these things. And so they would enact laws like, you know, we're going to be overrun basically. So they would enact laws uh, like the Chinese exclusion act of 1882 uh, to, to ban Chinese immigration. Uh, there was a loophole for Japan with the 1907 Gentlemen's Agreement, which basically said if you – that a Japanese woman uh, and and their kids could come over if they were married. Mm-hmm. So there were Japanese single men already in the United States that immigrated over here that would get married sight unseen from like a catalog basically mm-hmm. to in order to gain uh, immigration status for the Japanese women. And then that – ultimately got shut down in 1924 with the Immigration Act, and they just said no Japanese immigration of any any kind now after that. So there was a huge anti-Asian thread from the late 19th century and the early 20th century um, based on immigration, and a lot of that kind of centered on mail-order marriages. Um, but then uh, one of the other things that, that really kind of cropped up as a result of mail-order marriages going from, like, women back east or women coming from Europe to women coming from Asia uh, to marry white American men, um, was there There was this idea that the women were nothing more than, like, looking for um, a green card, basically, American citizenship, right. trying to escape their own country. And you run into that criticism today— I mean, just as much as you would have back in 1924 when they passed the the uh, Immigration Act against Japanese people. Oh, yeah, because, you know, uh, and this is from uh, Zug's book. She talks about, you know, Mexican women, Greek women, Asian women, Jewish women, Italian women. They were much more likely to be deported under an LPC charge, which is a person that is likely to become a public charge, basically, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like to come over and sort of live off the government. 
if they were from these countries and a way around that was to get married and get that green card. So that criticism like came pretty straight away, I think. Right. And then the other one is that, that they were basically all just sex workers in disguise coming over under the guise of being mail order brides, but really they were coming over here to prostitute themselves and behave immorally. Um, And again, this is another accusation that you see today, except the, 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 Onus has, or the the focus, the empathy, I guess, has evolved from being put on society, um, being uh, uh, attacked by these immoral women, to right. the women themselves being trafficked by international criminals. But it's still generally the same accusation. It's just been, it's just altered itself some. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, that sort of uh, anti-feminist charge from American women mm-hmm. Saying that you know these women from other countries are coming over here, and they they do whatever their husbands tell them, and this is setting us back. Uh, they would say the same thing though about war brides. If uh, you were a soldier in Korea or Vietnam and and brought a woman back over, they would have that same kind of charge levied against them, mm-hmm. saying the only reason you're bringing these women back is because of the power imbalance that is is now gained, and right. you know that can be fair to a certain degree. There's a lot, there is, it's really hard to talk about marriage like this without talking about uh, inequity and a power imbalance from the beginning. Um, Not to say that that doesn't change and that there aren't great success stories where Mm -hmm. uh, both partners are equal and they both contribute and they both, you know, respect one another's viewpoints. Uh, But there, anytime you are, in a situation where you are bringing someone over from another country that is escaping a bad situation and looking for a more prosperous situation, and you can provide that and you are paying the money to the service for linking you, there's a power imbalance there from the beginning. Yeah, well, there's a power imbalance in that, like, you probably don't speak the language as the mail-order bride. You don't have any friends. You don't have any family. You don't have any social structure to depend on. The only person you have to depend on is your husband. And right. if he's not very nice to you or even worse, abusive toward you, um, yes. you're in a, you're in big trouble. And then it's yep. also, like you said, if you are escaping poverty back home, you might show up with basically no money. And so if you just found out that this guy is not always cracked up to be or he is abusive or um, he's actually got a terrible criminal record or terrible credit or all sorts of stuff that you wouldn't have otherwise come over for, um, you're stuck here. And according to some human trafficking groups, that is a that is a broad definition of human trafficking, where a person is moved from one place to another for financial means and then ends up becoming dependent financially uh, in a situation that they otherwise wouldn't want to be in. They would not have chosen to put themselves in. That's as much human right. trafficking in a broad definition as somebody being kidnapped and forced into uh, sex work. Yeah, and even if there is no... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, no literal violence or abuse. Mm-hmm. It that doesn't mean that it's an equitable situation because someone can essentially be a uh, almost a captive in their own home, like you said. If they don't speak the language, they have no advocates over here for themselves mm-hmm. or friends to help them and speak up for them. And it's uh, you can see why it gets a bad rap for sure. So on the flip side, though, there have to be men out there who just struck out consistently with America or American women or men and took 
uh, matters into their own hands and looked abroad. And the best way to do that is a, a marriage broker. And there's plenty of places you can do that. Um, and then also the other problem with just basically characterizing um, mail-order brides as nothing but like victims ripe for exploitation is to really miss the personalities of a lot of them where to put yourself out there as a mail-order bride shows a um, or demonstrates like a lot of initiative compared to just staying back home and making do with your lot in life. Mm-hmm. Like if you're a widow in some countries and you have kids, you might not be remarriable. There might not be anybody who wants to marry you. And so you're doomed to a life of solitude and single motherhood, whether you like it or not. So if you just say, okay, well, that's my lot in life. That's what I'm doing. Okay, fine. But if you say, you know what? No, there's another way out. And it might not be the most tasteful thing that I would have chosen for myself uh, before, but I really want to make sure my kids are taken care of and I'm going to go seek a husband elsewhere. That shows, that demonstrates a lot of um, self-starterness, I guess, that that um, I think kind of undermines a lot of the view of, of mail-order brides as these kind of like simple-minded, docile uh, women um, that that can't fend for themselves or stick up for themselves. Yeah, and you it's also a real slippery slope to to judge uh I mean we we all think like oh it should, you should only fall in love with love at first sight mm-hmm. and that should be all it is and that should be what marriage is based on full stop. Right. It's a real slippery slope to uh to judge someone others someone else's situation if it's working out for both of them. If if it is a, a rich old guy in his 60s who is like, you know what? I want to live out the last 15 years of my life uh, with a partner. And there's a, a beautiful young Ukrainian woman who's like, you know what? I've got nothing going on over here. I don't have a lot of prospects. My country is not, you know, doing me any favors. And so I'm going to go over and marry some rich guy and we're going to be happy for the last 15 years of his life. Mm-hmm. And they travel and they do take cruises and they right. have a good time together. Like it's a real slippery slope to, for someone to come in and say, well, no, that's wrong Yeah, because you guys just didn't meet and fall in love. Like, you know, meeting in a bar drunk one night, yeah, <laughs> like, all, it, like all Americans. Again and again, that seems to be a, a longstanding criticism that stretches back at least a century here in America too. For sure. Okay. So enough of that, enough of that. I feel like we should talk about some of the nuts and bolts of um, the mail order marriage industry. Okay? Yeah. uh, Let's do it. Well, let's start. So I found this um, contemporary journalism um, Uh, from 1986. Your your CJ. Right. Uh, In the New York Times. And they they basically just checked in with the mail order marriage industry at the time. And it gave a really good snapshot of how things used to be. One of the reasons why mail order brides were called mail order brides because time was that you would find a mail-order marriage service. You would subscribe to that service. Uh, the New York Times says anywhere between $50 to $500 a year. Um, and a every, month. Every, well, that was for a catalog. Annual subscription oh, okay. was 50 to 500 And then every gotcha. month or every couple months or maybe twice a month, probably not twice a month, you would get a catalog that was clearly made by somebody who didn't major in catalog making in college. 
of <laughs> pictures of the of like a prospective bride, her stats, physical stats, her likes, her dislikes, that kind of thing. Basically, a blurb, and you were you'd flip through a catalog, and you'd get back in touch with the subscription service and say, "I like number eight eight nine seven two, um, and I also like." Thirty-seven fifty-five, and you just give them a list of of uh, women that you wanted them to reach out to on your behalf, and all of a sudden you would start exchanging letters, uh, little by little. You would narrow down the the women that you were talking to, and then you would eventually probably go over and meet one, and mm-hmm. maybe in that trip marry them like have have your wedding like that the day you meet them or the day after you met them and that was pretty standard for the the 70s and 80s as far as mail order goes and i think into the 90s as well yeah and of course it's all online now and depending on which agency you go through and like i said there are thousands they offer a range of services to you know bleed you of as much money as they can in the process right whether it's subscription fees or will will write your letters first letters for you and translate them for a fee right or if you want to video chat or have phone calls we can arrange that for a fee yeah everything has a fee uh i think this one and this is from an anti-trafficking international website article uh they said that estimates show um people spend about six to ten thousand dollars each client spends about six to ten thousand dollars yeah and I think this is for, you know, the, I guess, more high-end, m- more reputable ones. I think I think some of those places are happy if they get, like, 500 bucks out of you and then you leave. Well, I think you can be, like, a skinflint husband um, and just do it strictly online and then go meet them and marry them. But there are ones that offer, like, tours for, like, five grand, um, right. which, depending on the country, may or may not be legal. Uh, where you like, if you went to Vietnam, it would be illegal. In Vietnam, mail order um, marriages, the whole industry's illegal, but it's also rampant there. Right. Um, and there, there are like whole hotels that where a woman goes and stays, and then tours of like guys from Taiwan or South Korea or the United States come through and meet them. Uh, and I think human trafficking people are like, and do God knows what else. For right. money, and um, then if if you hit it off with one, maybe you like start talking to them a little more, or you marry them on the spot, that kind of thing. But there's like there's tours you can go on, and depending on your view of the mail order marriage industry, it's either a tour where you're going and meeting a lot of prospective brides, or it's basically a sex tour to Vietnam. Right, uh, and they also will do things where it's really hard to not read as. Uh, a man sort of buying a woman right. where they say like, well, you know, we'll put them up in this hotel and we'll have them go checked out by our doctors mm-hmm. and our psychologists. They'll have a psychological evaluation and all of this information will be sent to you, the man with the money to make your decision on whether or not you're going to sort of pay for this bride. And it's, it's really hard to look at that any other way than that. Like you really got to stretch your mind. Yeah. And but then you will read a, a story about a couple that that are deeply in love for twenty years on, and who had kids in America and who had a great life together, uh, and it, and they were like, no, it was really more like an international dating service, mm-hmm. uh, and they just sort of matchmaked, um, or matchmated, made matched, <laughs> matchmaked. 
love it. Uh, so it's like, it's just, I'm, I don't know if we've ever had a topic where I was so like, all right, well, this doesn't sound too bad. And like, oh my God, this sounds terrible. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah, I, I can't remember. And that may be the industry, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it can be both those things. Yeah, it makes you, yes. And it surely is both of those things. Again, the question is, is one way more than the other? And if so, which way is it lopsided? And if so, do we need to like follow Vietnam's footsteps and outlaw the marriage, the mail order marriage industry? You know what I'm saying? It's like, sure. Th- that, that may be a really big red flag. Like, why did Vietnam outlaw an entire industry that's totally like fine and legal here in the United States? Right. So, um, should we take a break? Yeah, I think we should take a break. And um, we'll talk about uh, mail-order uh, marriages in the Internet age because things have changed a little bit. Yeah, and some of the laws. Yeah. Right? Right. All right, we'll be right back. All right. Um, really quickly, this uh, the great article I found that from the Anti Trafficking International site. They did kind of talk a little bit about what it means for your immigration status mm-hmm. and how, because I mentioned earlier that Zug said, you know, who's really at risk are undocumented immigrants because they have no recourse. Right. Um, but even if you do come over as a mail order bride, and uh, here, here's basically what happens: the immigration. Uh, marriage fraud amendment, which was enacted in 86, is basically the husband will apply for a spouse uh, or a fiance visa. Mm-hmm. And then the bride marries, has to marry the husband within three months upon arrival in the U.S. So there's a, a three month sort of try it out period. Right. Uh, but the bride only has conditional resident status for two years. So in that two year period, um, at the end of which they have to apply jointly for her permanent status as a resident in that conditional two year period. That is the, the dodgy territory where they're basically like the bride is completely dependent on the husband. He holds all the cards. Uh, they're very vulnerable at this point. They may have linguistic isolation uh, or, and or cultural isolation. They may not have that social network that we were talking about or be completely economically dependent on the husband. And they might be afraid that he'll be like, oh, you know what? It's in that two-year frame. I can still have you sent home. Right. So you better, you better be nice. Uh, and this is basically where they're saying this is just sort of a, a softer version of trafficking. Right. Even though, and there is real trafficking attached to this. We're not talking about that. We're talking about women who do come over voluntarily. Right. Uh, but they still see that as a sort of a softer version of that. So, um, and that power dynamic and the one where you mentioned where the, the men were supplied with all the information, where the mail order brides had basically none about the men, um, that that's changed in the last few years thanks yeah. to the internet and thanks to things like video chat and texting and Facebook and Skype. And now women uh, are able, just through the simple tools of the internet, um, to to be much more discerning and discriminating in the, the men they choose. It's not just like, I'm going to put myself in a catalog and cross my fingers. Um, they're they're much they're putting themselves out there much more. At least ones that are are members of legitimate mail order marriage brokerages, right? Yeah, and there was uh, there were very sadly a couple of uh, high profile murders yeah. uh, leading up to 
the International Marriage Broker Regulation Act in 2005. And this is where things really kind of changed as far as at least trying to help adjust that power dynamic in that uh, if you are a legitimate brokerage agency, you're required to um, provide these women with a lot of information now about the men, um, whether or not they're on uh, state or national sex offender registries, um, background on their like financials. Yeah, uh, they're given information on on domestic violence and like what that looks like, you know, and how to go to the police and stuff like that, and that you can do stuff like that. Yeah, um, arrest history, history, marital history, residence history. If they have kids, That's a big all one. kinds of stuff now that these agencies have to provide about the men for the women. Yeah, and so people who are like, hey, that's not that's not cool, man. If you were an American woman just dating a, an American man, you wouldn't have access to that kind of information. Right. That's it's really true. invasive. It is true. It's also almost basically a straw man argument because yeah. an American woman is not going to be in the kind of isolated, completely right. dependent situation that a mail-order bride's going to be in. And so the mail-order bride needs a lot more safeguards than just an average American woman's going to need. So nice try, but that argument doesn't hold water at all. Yeah, I agree. Um, you talked earlier at the beginning about a lack of data and statistics. They don't even really know how often this is happening, mm -hmm. much less how many are successful and how many times they end like poorly or in abuse and things like that. There, there are a few numbers out there. Uh, I think the, uh, how do you pronounce that? I want to say um, Tahiri. Tahiri Justice Center. They estimate between 11,000 and 16,000 uh, women immigrate each year through a marriage broker. Uh, the INS has it more like four to 6,000. Uh, so you kind of can't really tell how much this is even going on. So it's really hard to, you know, like you said, if you don't have the data for for noobs like us, it's kind of hard to form a hard opinion. Right, but it's not just noobs like us who don't have the data. Like, no one has the data. So it's yeah. like, you know, no one can form a hard opinion. And you, if in that case, you have to treat it on, like, a case-by-case -case basis. And, like, if you if you have nothing but anecdotal data— or evidence, you can't just say like, yes, the mail order marriage industry is just a front for human trafficking and sex mm -hmm. trafficking. That's that is a moral panic that you've just started right there. Um, so we have to go out and get the data. But at the same time, that doesn't mean you can't simultaneously offer support to right. women who might be suffering from that. Like, what if it turns out to be true? Like, yeah, it's all just a big front for human trafficking, and these women need help. Roll out the red carpet, like get those services broadcast, like figure out how to get them help if they need it and see if anybody comes out of the woodwork in the meantime while you're conducting those studies to come up with that data one way or another. Can't hurt. It's just money. And that's a pretty good thing to spend money on, if you ask me. Yeah, I agree. Uh, there are some studies that show spousal abuse rates are about three times higher. Uh, but this is just for immigrant women married to U.S. husbands. Mm -hmm. I don't think I think that includes all immigrant women. I don't think it's just right. mail order situations. That's right. So that's data that doesn't exactly help, um, but it does shine a light on that power dynamic as a whole. I think. Yeah, and I couldn't I couldn't tell the um, Dave mentioned that there were three um, murdered women mail mail order brides in the United States. 
I think between 2010 and 2020, maybe. And if using the high um, the high number that the uh, um, Tahiri Justice Center uses for how many came over every year. You get 160,000 of them. So three murders out of 160,000 population is, I think, 0.18%. But out of um, all the women, all the married women in America, it's like 64 million married women, um, 17,250 on average died, but were murdered by their partner in that same time, which is 2.6%. So uh, I probably got the math wrong, but if it is right, then that means you're actually less likely to be murdered by your husband as a mail-order bride than you are just as an American woman um, who was married and just part of the general population. So that's great. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's one of those stats you can't feel good about. No, exactly. That's a great, that is an excellent point for sure, Chuck. I mean, I think it it shines a light that we need to basically do away with um, spousal murder. I think we can all get behind that, right? (laughs) Yeah, what what it does though, again, is it makes you think maybe let's concentrate on the real problems. Right. And, and if that's not, if if the mail order bride situation isn't the real problem, then we just and we all know this, but we we have a real domestic violence problem in this country anyway. Yeah, it's the same thing. What was the last one we talked about? Oh, the stranger danger, where it was like, oh no, actually, your cousin is going to like rape and murder you way more uh, frequently than just some strangers. But let's all concentrate right. on the stranger. Right. Your your spouse is possibly going to murder you, but let's ignore that and concentrate on mail-order brides being murdered instead, even right. if it's just a, a much less of a, a chance. Like, yeah. that's the that's the definition of a moral panic, and you got to sort those out because they obfuscate important things. Yeah, and you know, at the beginning of the episode, you mentioned uh, LGBTQ rights. Uh, that's why we call it mail-order marriages now, because mm-hmm. in 2013, with the Supreme Court striking down parts of the Defense of Marriage Act, uh, it allowed, uh, and there has been a, a, you know, since then, a sort of a, a big time rise in LGBTQ people mm-hmm. um, doing the exact same thing. And a lot of times, these people in other countries are literally fleeing for their life because they have no rights in their own country as uh, as a person from that community. So that's one of those where you look at and you're like, they they could literally be saving someone's life by getting them out of their country over here. Yep. That's right. And men do it too. I, I saw there was a, uh, I was curious about mail order husbands mm-hmm. and if that was even a thing. And apparently Ireland in recent years has got some of this going on where these Irish men mm-hmm. are putting themselves out there and saying, Hey, uh, I'm a strapping young Irish man mm-hmm. and I'm happy to come marry you and live in your country. Very nice. It's a thing in Ireland. Did not know that. I had no idea either, but leave it to Ireland to just try something new. So good for you, Ireland. Good for you. (laughs) Uh, You got anything else on mail order marriages? I got nothing else. I can take off my roller skates now. This one was, uh, it was, there was danger at every turn. I thought you did great. I thought we did great. (laughs) It's good. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Oh God, I hope so. Uh, well, if you want to know more about mail-order marriages, go check it out and see what you think for yourself. Don't take our words for it. Um, and since I said don't take our words for it, it's time for listener mail. Uh, listener mail, this, this is a, a sad case, uh, so a bit of a trigger warning here, uh, especially if you lost a family member to COVID. But 
Uh, I had a back and forth with this gentleman, and he, he really felt strongly about reading this on the air uh, in the name of getting people vaccinated. Uh, hey, guys, haven't written in quite some time. Been listening since 2008. You've been around for so many personal milestones, uh, even though we've never met, uh, even though I did ask you the best question ever at your live show in Phoenix. Uh, my father taught me how to play guitar. I've been playing for nearly 30 years because of his influence. There's never been a question of uh, Gibson or Fender in my family. It's always been clear we're a Fender family. Mm-hmm. Uh, he played a Strat and I played a Tele. Uh, the last, this last Tuesday, uh, I said goodbye to my father. COVID had done its job and completely overtaken his body. After he passed later that day, I went into my truck and took a few minutes and decided I needed some Josh and Chuck Mm. to get my mind off of things. And I was absolutely shocked Uh, on that day. Leo Fender and Les Paul came through in my feed. Nice. Uh, My father and I did not have uh, anything we bonded over more than our love of music and playing guitar, an affinity for Fender, and a dislike of all things Gibson. Sorry, Chuck. (laughs) Uh, there could not have been more perfect topic to help me through one of the hardest days of my life. I look forward to someday when I might be able to shake your hands after a good hand washing and sanitization. And just thank you for being with me through so many good days and so many bad days. And he included a song that he gave his father that he wrote for him. Mm-hmm. It's great. And uh, this is from Eddie. And Eddie said, please read this on the air. He said, uh, my mother decided to get vaccinated uh, because of this, and they were not vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And he said, just please send the message out to people that it can happen to you and your family and just go out there and get that vaccination already. Thanks for that, Eddie. Um, and Definitely our condolences on your father's passing. I'm really sorry to hear that. Uh, but I'm glad we could bring you a little measure of comfort at a terrible time. So thank you for letting Absolutely. us know about that. And also thank you for telling everybody to get vaccinated because that's a pretty good thing to use your position for. Um, so I think like Eddie said, go get vaccinated. Yeah, we said it. Go get vaccinated. Okay? Okay. Agreed. And in the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.